0: Hello, no introductory music today, just the sound of the wind and rain howling across the UK this morning. A metaphor for the storm that has completely destroyed England's ashes hopes, highlighted today by this sort of tornado which blew through the England batting in the name of Scott Boland and the England batting lasting just 27 overs in total in that second innings at the MCG to record... England's lowest score in Australia since the early 1900s and their ninth Test match defeat in this calendar year, the worst ever. So, Simon, <laughs> not a good start to a podcast, really, is it? <laughs> Well, it was a it was a feeble effort,
1: uh, really, from England. I think we yeah we both knew last night we talked about it. We knew the Ashes were were gone. Really, it's just a question of what the the margin of victory was going to be. I have to say, when I woke up this morning, I think the first thing I was thinking is, you know, what are those COVID tests like for the England players? Have they passed them all? Yes. So on we went to the MCG. I didn't actually consider England losing by innings. I thought they would score. 82 or more to make Australia bat again. I think mean, you, you did as well. But the, the idea of them uh, being bowled out for under 82 and, you know, for 267 to be a, a sufficient margin in the first innings to, to force an innings victory, I mean, incredible, really. And, then, you know, there are lots of other stats flying around. England have been bowled out at four times inside 30 overs in the last four years. In the previous 114 years, they've been bowled out four times in under 30 overs. It was the shortest Test match in Australia since 1950, 180.4 overs. I mean, there are there lots of stats. The, the 54 ducks, uh, which is uh, in, a, in a calendar year, which equals the record, um, and and those um, defeats in a year, ninth defeat, uh, that actually equals a record. It's Bangladesh in 2003. They lost uh, nine Test matches. But it was a really dispiriting day for England. Obviously, a great day for Australia and that their supporters turned out. They knew they were going to win the Ashes today, I think. And you know, they were celebrated with Scott Bowler. I mean, what an incredible day for a man who, you know, two days ago was probably just happy to win his first test. Cap, of course he wanted to perform well, he wanted to take a wicket or two, take a few catches, score some runs if he possibly can. But to take six for seven, I mean they they were just incredible figures have you ever had figures like that in your career so you know Storm so few cricket. runs so <laughs> few runs or so many. wickets yeah
0: yeah i i extraordinary um actually i i once um i once took nine for 18 but it was against a, a an oxford university college and the last man refused to bat and the pitch was appalling so i don't think it's really a, a fair thing but i mean, it is extraordinary six or seven i mean I, scott Bolan, looking at him after play he was walking around the MCG in a bit of a daze, imagining it was a dream, really, because it was a dream. It it, it, it was a fantasy, taking wickets like that so easily. Of course, it will never be easy, as easy again. He probably bowled better um, for less reward, actually. Uh, I mean, he bowled well. He bowled well, but it was one of those occasions where every ball that he bowled did a little bit off the pitch and enough of them were in the business area to take the edge or get through between bat and pad and he got the verdicts you know the there, there couple of well one very marginal lbw decision to johnny bairstow sort of brushing the varnish on the top of the bales as was the case with david milan earlier on the, the day before as well <sighs> everything went for australia it was one of those dreamings i mean a bit like when Stuart broad bowled australia out for 60 at, at trent bridge really it's the same kind of thing the ball beautifully pitched did enough off the pitch. In a way, you know, you don't want the ball to do too much, just mm-hmm. enough. You know, the bat's only four inches wide, so the middle of the bat is, from the middle to the edge is only two inches, so, you know, you only want to go a little bit, sort of move it an inch or so, and you are potentially going to get the edge. And I, I thought something like Joe Root's dismissal was a classic example. Beautiful delivery, not quite a half volley. The, the shot was reasonable, uh, really. Uh, you know, you could could say it was slightly across it, but... The ball just moved enough to take the edge. Beautiful catch at uh, first slip by David Warner. Uh, A lovely dismissal, actually, earned by the bowler and the pitch. Uh, But there's no getting away from it. From uh, an overall perspective, it was a pitiful performance by England. Yeah, uh, just a couple
1: of other stats or one that really caught my eye. In 2021, you mentioned Joe Root there. I mean, he's been so much better than anyone else in the England side. He carried the England side this year with, with his batting. So 1,708 runs at 61 England, played 15 Test matches in 2021. Rory Burns next with 530. Of course, he was left out of this Test match. So they, they left out their their second leading run scorer in the year. And the, do you know what the third leading run scorer in the year was for England or, or who it was or, or what it was? I still think what is a bit of a clue. It was extras, it was extras with 412 third leading run score for england in 2021 and they have serious problems i think with with their batting and you know it's it, it's not a revelatory uh, statement but where, where are the techniques to to cope in the cauldron of, of somewhere like Australia? Where are the techniques to cope in somewhere uh, like India or, or on spinning pitches in India? We saw that you know when, when those pitches uh, did did spin and they spun quite a lot actually at, at times and in India, especially in that second Test match. England were were found wanting. They were rolled out there, and they've been rolled out here. They haven't made three hundred in this Test series. I, mean, I think in a situation like this everyone is sort of scouting around for answers and there's the blame game start isn't it sack the coach sack the captain sack the team sack Ashley Giles sack Tom Harrison sack the lot of them um disband the counties I mean you know you can you, you can do all you can say all sorts of things but you, I suppose what you have to try to do I think is be constructive you, you know and but I, I mean, one of the th- things about the, the situation they're in at the moment is the answers are not easy. That you know, they're, they're, and I don't think there's a, a short-term fix. You look around at the, the counties. You know, where are the players? You looked at the Lions team that played against uh, Australia A up in Brisbane. You look down the side. Okay, some promising players, but you, you don't think, oh yeah, there's him and him and him. Yeah, they they could definitely make England stronger. And perhaps that's the wrong place to look. You know, with with the younger players. Perhaps it might be that you go for a bit more experience to sort of shore the team up in the. The short term, Australia picked Alex Carey, he's 30. Scott Boland is, is 32. They picked Michael Neeson, who's into his 30s as well. So, you know, experienced cricketers, cricketers perhaps who, who know their game. I mean, he said that, I'm sort of, in a way, I'm sort of about to contradict myself because you look at England from uh, number three uh, down to number seven, they had Milan, Root, Stokes, Bairstow, Butler, who are all very experienced cricketers. I suppose one of the problems they have is at the top of the order and they haven't solved that problem uh, They're two youngsters, two under 25 players in Hamid and Crawley, and they were vulnerable. Of course, well, you know you're two down the whole time, aren't you? And then you're you're under pressure. One thing Australia did do well in this series, well, one of the things they did well in the series. You look at the first test, David Warner, one of their openers, made 94. In the second test, first innings, one of their openers, David Warner, made 95. In this test match, one of their openers, Marcus Harris, made 76 runs at the top of the order. It's it, it's so important. It seems to me that's one area which England somehow need to solve. But I don't you know, I don't think the solution is e- is easy. And they've been trying for years now, haven't they? Since uh, you know, since Andrew Strauss uh, retired, and, and then latterly Alistair Cook, they've been looking for an opening mm. combination to to succeed. And they haven't. They've tried so many people. And it, it has not worked. I mean, there's a whole list of them. There's probably more, more people than you dismissed in first-class cricket
0: yards, have, have, you know, in terms of numbers. <laughs> yeah, and I guess you, you can read quite a lot into how good those players that they chose are by their first-class averages. You know, if you want someone to succeed at test level, especially opening the batting, then they have to have a, a first-class average in the 40s at least, and the majority of those players who've been tried have first-class averages in the 30s. And that just suggests, and we had um, the statistician Dan Weston on one time, didn't we, on this show, saying, you know, you can almost uh, pro- project from a person's first-class average what they're going to average in test cricket. And there have been uh, outliers on that one. Famously, people like Michael Vaughan and Michael Straskothic, whose first-class average wasn't that high, and yet they converted into being a very successful des- test batsman. But those are normally the exception that proved the rule and the standard of first class batting, opening batting is not high and they're not making big scores, they're not making big hundreds or thousands of runs. Rory Burns does uh, playing for Surrey and has the advantage of batting at the oval for half his games. It is about the pitches I think as much as anything because our pitches and the way that uh, English county cricket is organised doesn't you know, help opening batsmen play long innings and build big scores because they're out as before, almost before they've come in, in, in many cases. And they, it doesn't encourage them to, to play the sort of game that say, Marus Labuschagne plays, which is, you know, you see the ball just short of a length on off stump. You leave it early on with confidence because you know it's going to bounce over the stumps. And you you judge what, what to play and what to leave, and you can be confident in that. Whereas if you play on particularly early season English pitches, you can't be confident of the bounce or the the movement, and therefore you can't leave the ball. you've, you've got to try and offer a shot to it. It might get you out, it might get you runs, but it's more of a lottery. And uh, so I don't think that the and we have said this you know many times, but I just think that the pitches and the structure of county championship cricket does not encourage batsmen. Generally, you know, there are exceptions, but it doesn't encourage batsmen at the top of the order to play long innings and bat for a long time. And, uh, you know, just sort of doing a parallel with New Zealand, who, you know, reached their sort of nadir in about 2010 and were bottom of the ICC test rankings, uh, and they looked at their domestic game and I've talked to John Bracewell about this, who the former New Zealand spinner who became their head coach and he said the main thing that they did was bring in, make sure that all the pitches were good. Excellent pitches, fast pitches, good bounce, encouraging spinners later in the game but fundamentally encouraging good batsmen and you know that's where people like Kane Williamson and others emerged. Uh, you know some other kind of good players as well who can play a long innings. They emerged at that at that time and were able to thrive on those good pitches. It's not an easy thing to to sort in English cricket. We don't have the weather, or we haven't at the moment got the the organisation to to play those those Test ma- those four day matches in the middle of the summer. But I think that's one thing that really is necessary.
1: Yeah, I mean it looks as if there are going to be more. Four-day matches in the middle of the summer next year—that's one thing. I mean, that that I think there's going to be a bit of a change there, which will help a bit because you know, going into a Test series, you know, the sort of back end of the summer, then players will have had some red-ball cricket, and it's definitely the case that they, that was lacking for the series against India, and clearly it was it was lacking before the, the series against Australia. Just on, on Labuschagne, actually, it's quite an interesting uh, case study because his first-class average was was not that good; it was in the low. 30s he went to Glamorgan in, in 2019 and had a you know he, he did play in the in the early part of the english summer worked you know worked on his game worked on his game and then took his chance and in this match he went into the game as the world's uh, number one batter number one icc ranked batter so he I mean, there, there are lots of things you can throw into the mix, and you know, clearly players have succeeded over the years playing on you know, English pitches and, and making the most of English pitches. And actually, lots of Australians have come over to county cricket and 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 done really well, high high quality players. But that was probably more back in the day than it is in the in the in the modern era. And Labishain, in that sense, is a. Is a bit of an outlier. Uh, I mean, and also as well, yours. I mean, there have been, you know, and there, there can be sometimes. And the weather has, is strange. I mean, we can't predict our weather. Strangely, you know, we've have had some quite nice weather in April, May, and some quite flat pitches and some quite high scores. I suppose it's that sort of consistency, isn't it? And you know, a lot of people will say it's all about white ball cricket. And I think there has been an emphasis on on white ball cricket definitely and mm. there are rich yeah. you know there are, there are money to be made in them they're white ball hills aren't there that, that, that and for younger players you think well yeah I'll play a few decent innings in in the blast or in the 100 or whatever and then that, that'll get me a contract somewhere else and a contract somewhere else so you can make money and and it is enticing and so you what you it seems to me what you need to do is to persuade or have a system somehow where uh, younger players a their techniques are strong and they're, you know, they're well-coached at a young age, so they, they have got solid base, and B, almost to incentivise uh, players to, to focus on, on Red ball cricket. I mean, that's much easier said than done, and how you actually do it is not that straightforward, but it, it, uh, that seems to be one area that they, they could look at, uh, because mm. you know, inevitably there'll be some soul-searching, won't there, after an Ashes series defeat like this, because people are angry, and you understand it. People are frustrated. I'm sure they are back in the UK. You know, this is this is not good enough. It keeps on happening. Let's do something about it. Let's see if we can find a way to try and win everywhere. It's not just about winning at home. And, and, and having said that, England haven't been that good at winning at home. They've, they've, they've dropped quite a few matches at home last summer, and they, you know, they've lost a couple of test matches to the West Indies who are not a great side. So, you know, it's... Um, there are there are lots of issues and it probably needs time and it needs thought careful thought and canvassing of, of, of some you know some proper ideas how to try to solve the problem
0: yeah, I remember when Raoul Rabbit came over with the Indian A team about three years ago and it was prelude to a test series I think it was 2017 wasn't it and I talked to him for quite a long time about his work with young Indian batsmen and he said, you know, it's frustrating that they just want to go in and hit boundaries and they don't, they don't value a good leave, he said. Uh, But he spent time with the selected players and this is Indian A, so England have an equivalent team, England Lions, who do go on tour and play sort of semi-test matches or longer form games against their equivalents abroad. And, and he just said he worked hard individually with players in the nets um, and obviously in middle practices and things as well, just trying to get their mental approach stronger and kind of getting into their head that there is something satisfying about batting all day for 130. You know, he said, I loved it. I loved batting all day and, and getting satisfaction from a good leave. You know, and he said, I, you know, the modern player just wants to smack it miles into the terraces sort of thing. So you need a, a, you know, you need an absolute legend like that to implement those messages about getting the satisfaction from, you know, sticking it out and, and really playing a long innings and how much more fulfillment that gives you at the end of the day or at the end of the match. It, it might not get the adrenaline, you know, flowing through the, the veins because you've only made 21 in the first session or something. But your contribution to the team and also to yourself, I suppose, in a way, the, the, the kind of growing, you know, the rite of passage, uh, in a way, kind of fills you with more um, feeling of, of satisfaction at the end and fulfilment. But it's how do you get that message over and you probably need those kind of types that the drought Ra- dravids the alistair cooks the Strauss's, etc you know you need those players to come and talk to the young players and try and you know ingrain that message in those selected players who you feel you can identify as having that kind of potential
1: yeah i mean what one of the i think one of the sort of coaching uh, sort of methods used these days or one of the sort of philosophies is to let players work it out for themselves. I, I mean, I know that at test level, because if you're if you picked to play at test level, you, you know, you're not going to be changing it. You shouldn't be, I suppose, you know, changing your technique in the sort of few days before a, a test match. But I mean, obviously you do need to tinker. I mean, Joe Root's talked to, in the Virtual Creek Club, isn't he, about just changing things the whole time because bowlers uh, work you out. So you, you obviously do need to be working on your game. But it's about... It, that, that that movement to yeah, it's about you working on it and I, I whether that's happening for younger players as well you know you work it out here, here you know here's the um here's the framework in terms of facilities and whatever but you try to work it out if you yourself sort of get players to think for themselves so there's that element to it and you can see the benefit of that in a way you know if, if a player is self-sufficient can think about yeah, I need to. I need to work on this aspect of my game and go away and do it for yourself. Then, in a way, if you can convince them of that that is quite effective, but you also need, in a way, someone to tell you what the basics are and what you need to do to be able to succeed. So, you, yeah, it's about. It seems to me about trying to get that that balance right. I mean, one one thing we have ignored a little bit in this podcast, uh, yours, is the fact that. This is a pretty good Australian side in their own conditions, definitely. I mean, they're not—they're not a bad side, and they have got good bowlers. And I'm telling you, that spell last night uh, with Stark and Cummins and the crowd roaring—you uh, know—was phenomenal Test cricket. It was gladiatorial Test match cricket, and it was—it was tough. You know, for those two young England openers, hard to survive. Really tough. Stark, quality bowler. Cummins, absolute quality bowler, bowling at high pace, accurate. Crowd behind them and you you, you know, you're battling for your for your team in the ashes. So you know this is this is not a bad Australian side but you know it has been a series in which Cummins wasn't available for the second test and Hazelwood, is a top class bowler as we all know wasn't available for the second and third test. And if you'd said that to England at the start of the series or England supporters they'd have thought oh hold on a second this this gives us a chance. And what do you know Jai Richardson comes in and takes five wickets in the second test and Scott Boland comes in and takes six in the first
0: um, it, it's been hard it's hard but I mean yeah, it is harder I mean you know the thing is of course these bowlers are bowling with a huge amount of skill certainly in the case of Cummins and Stark and experience but also confidence confidence in the fact that they've performed well in this series already but also more so confidence in the fact that they, they know England aren't very good and you know, so you immediately feel buoyant when you run into bowl because you're expecting wickets. You know that Rory Burns's technique's a bit dodgy, and Hamid looks a bit frail. And you know, then there's a number three coming in who's an okay player, but you know he could easily get out as well. So you're bowling with a lot of expectation, which just makes you bowl better. No, I, I totally concede though that spell from Cummins, in particular, on the second evening, was as hard as it's ever going to get in Test cricket. You know, the ball was nipping, every ball was doing something, a fantastic pace and line and length. You had to play virtually every ball. He wasn't even, I I was watching him because sometimes he sort of thunders to the wicket, you know, really kind of pummeling the ground and charging in. He was gliding to the wicket, he was just easing into his run up and bowling probably a little bit within himself. And, and you know, sometimes when that happens, the the ball, the bowling is even better and even faster. Actually, the harder you try, often with quick bowling, the worse it is. And he he just had that beautiful rhythm, and every ball, you know, sliding onto the onto the pitch and kissing the surface and whipping off it and nipping around either one way or the other. Uh, it was just outstanding, extraordinary. Didn't get a wicket, but he got the wickets for the others at the other end. You know, Scott Boland has to him to thank in a way because. It was so hard facing Cummins that something had to give at the other end.
1: So, just on some of the you know the more nuts and bolts of England's immediate future, and it, you know we the only way we need to keep our powder dry a bit because what what are we going to talk about for the last two test matches? Because it could you know, it could be a procession here, but a lot of people saying and I, and I started off at the start of this podcast talking about this you know people saying oh we need a new captain we need a new coach uh, we need a new uh, managing director of, of cricket where where do where does Joe Root stand do you think I, I mean I I listened to his post-match uh, press conference interviews well his Presentation interview and an interview with uh, Jonathan Agnew on 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 TMS, and I, I saw his sort of face on camera, and you know there was the anger after the last Test match. There was that sense of sort of deflation and sadness after today I mean it does take it out of you doesn't it as being England captain he he equalled the the record number of appearances as England captain in in this test match Uh, is it inevitable do you think that he will go at the end of this series two more games he sort of brushed off questions about his his future that's sort of inevitable because he's sort of in the middle of a tour and there's still two games to go do you think it's inevitable that he will stand down after this series
0: yeah I do Uh, I I think that uh, there was an air of resignation about him in this test match and towards the end anyway And uh, I just think that he will just feel he's gone as far as he can go in this job and he needs to give someone else a chance. Uh, And it's not because he's been a terrible captain at all. Uh, He's a fine man, obviously had an amazing season with the bat. Uh, He's probably, he's not the most brilliant tactician, but he's not a terrible captain. And uh, most of these defeats are not his fault. But he must have to accept that he hasn't been able to get the best out of these players for whatever reason. And he's tried his absolute best. He's given everything to to, to the job. And, you know, there's only so much a human can take. And, you know, he's he's played three series in Australia now, lost all of them, obviously only two as captain. Yeah, I think you just have to, in the end, it just, it wears you down and you need to refresh and give someone else a chance. Yeah, he actually said at the start of the series, yeah, this series will define my captaincy. Well,
1: England lost 3-0. They've been thumped. They have, they've been absolutely thumped in three test matches out here. So if Root does go, who's, who's next in line? People say, no, it can't be Ben Stokes, but he's the vice captain. So, you know, you you would assume that that is where it's going to go next. I heard uh, you know, people are saying you know, potentially Rory Burns, but you know, he does captain at Surrey. But is he certain of his place in the side where he was left out here? He's in his early 30s. That doesn't necessarily legislate against him because we were talking earlier about the, perhaps the importance of of experience. But, you know, he is England's second leading run scorer uh, this year, albeit not with a huge number of runs, five hundred and thirteen in, in, well, actually in 14 matches for him because he was left out of this game. Uh, but England have done it before where they've given the captaincy to their sort of start all rounders. You think of Ian Botham and Andrew mm. Flintoff and, mm. it, and it hasn't really worked. Um, yeah. So so what so what do they do? Is is it, is it Stokes because there's no one else or do they try and create something different or find someone different? Yeah, I, is, I think you is, can
0: overthink it actually. And, uh, you know, I think you said this before we came, came into the show today that, you know, Stokes is the obvious choice and as vice captain it, it would seem odd in a way to suddenly promote somebody else ahead of him. And actually, if you compare Stokes to Botham and Flintoff, I think he's more of a thinking cricketer than either of them. You know, they were both natural, you know, fabulous uh, attacking warrior-like cricketers. And whereas Stokes is that, but he's also a thinking cricketer who, you know, does read the game well and studies the game and thinks about the game very deeply. And so I think he would be good. I mean, obviously part of captaincy is man management. And that is maybe where Root has failed a bit. And I don't know what Stokes would be like uh, as a man-manager, but everybody respects him. He obviously does speak in team meetings quite a lot and people say, I don't, you know, I'll give you an example. And in that um, run up to the World Cup final in 2019, there was a, a, a crisis moment when England uh, were about to play India and they had to win. They'd lost against Sri Lanka and Australia and if they didn't win their last couple of games, they were out. So it became a crunch match, that India game at Edgebaston, June the 30th, I think it was. And they had a total heart to heart. they brought in uh, their sports psychologist for a session with all of them, a guy called David Young. And he encouraged all the players to voice their fears and um, worries about the situation. And Stokes was the most powerful voice in that meeting saying, yes, I'm actually nervous, I'm worried, I'm fearful that we're going to get knocked out here, we're going to play poorly and we're going out of the World Cup, which everyone has tipped us to win. And he was very emotional in his speech and apparently it created, and I've talked to other players about this, um, all the players were really moved and affected and invigorated by his speech, that even a person as strong and obviously sort of robust as Stokes was admitting to fear of failure. And I think that actually emboldened the team to then go and play their natural game. And They obviously demolished India and went on to win the World Cup. So, you know, you can see Stokes is an honest man who can speak his mind and has the massive respect of the team. So uh, I think you know he is the obvious choice to captain and um, the, there's an example of uh, one little bit of this Ashes series when he did captain when Root was off the field for what half an hour or something and that was one of England's best spells when the bowlers pitched the ball up kept going past the bat he sort of ordered them I think or implored them to, to pitch the ball a bit fuller they did and they you know the, the, there was a better spell of play for England when Stokes was in charge um, so it, all, the, all the roads point to that being the logical
1: decision Mm. Uh, what about Chris Silverwood's uh, position as, as head coach? Uh, well, I think he's six... taken on
0: too much. I think, you know, being lumbered with coaching, being the, effectively the head coach in all three formats and being the chief selector is just too much for one person. And I think, you know, especially test cricket is so sophisticated now and uh, you, you you need someone with a lot of experience. You know, so the, the people like Andy Flower and Trevor Bayliss and you know Duncan Fletcher really steeped in cricket all around the world and in uh, Cup One case anyway Flower you know a fantastic player as well that does help if they've got that integrity that depth of knowledge that range of understanding which I think you need in Test cricket uh, in one day cricket it, it, you know white ball cricket you know a Silverwood is is probably fine because you know there's a lot of data there's a lot of strategies and techniques and things which you can sort of, it's kind of simpler in a way, I think. And, and you can, you know, rely on stats a bit more. But with the mental approach required for Test cricket and the intricacies of technique and so on, you need real uh, major figures. And, you know, Justin Langer is a great example. You know, what an incredible player he was. What a, a deep-thinking man he is. And I'm not saying that Chris Silwood is not a deep-thinking man, but I think you want someone of that stature to be your test match coach to get the best out of the players or help to get the best out of the players. So I would be inclined to think of Silverwood more as a a white ball coach and find somebody else to be the test match coach.
1: Well, Ashes series often are the sort of nemesis of uh, coaches. Uh, Duncan Fletcher left not long after an Ashes series defeat in Australia. It was actually after the World Cup. The World Cup. Came straight after the Ashes. Andy Flower, he, he was done for him after an Ashes series. Trevor Bailey stood down after the last Ashes series. Chris has only been in, jo- in the job for for two years, but you know it, the the criticism is circling around him, and it, inevitable that that happens. Especially, I think, you know, especially because he's taken on that that role as well. I want to be the main the main man. So, and you know, when when you do that, then you are. Inevitably, uh, more vulnerable. But it, it may be with with Chris Silverwood that people are looking in the wrong place. That you know the the problems are far more fundamental. The idea, you know, can could can Chris Silverwood uh, t- t- turn round a uh, sort of system in a way that's against him and a and, and a build up as well that was against him. They did all this planning, but in in the end, when it came to it, they had no cricket before the the first test at the Gabba. What what about? Uh, not so much for this series, because you've got your 18, haven't you? Your, your 17 or whatever it is uh, in, in your tour party. Mm. What about in terms of England got three test match series in the West Indies. I know they've got the Ashley series to sort out. I mean, do you see a much different team uh, in the West Indies or is it a case of tr- trying to make the most of the of the players? They have Joe Rook saying today, these are the best players in, in the county system. You know, so d- do they actually say, well, there are probably players of a similar level uh, out there you know are, are they that much better than anyone else or is it actually there's sort of like a flat line of of, of of talent and you could almost choose you know you could almost choose 11 from I don't know 40 or 11 from 35 you'd almost get the something similar or can you just find something that's a bit better you know that extra two, three, five percent with percent if you do tinker a bit or overhaul the side a bit or how, how do you see well, the, t- the site going forward? Cho- I
0: think chopping and changing is, is bad because you never sort of move forward. You, you, you're, and pitching people in, and you know, the gap between domestic cricket and test cricket is quite large. So you just never know when you pick someone whether they are going to make that leap or not. And for me, uh, and I have said this several times, I know, but for me, Zach Crawley has the makings of being a very good test player. He has presence. He has a technique. Uh, He is able to, you know, score quickly and uh, as well as stay in. And uh, having proved himself was playing a long innings against Pakistan. He hasn't been staying in much this year, Yoz. No, he hasn't. But I mean, mean, he hasn't had much cricket. That's the trouble. I mean, I know that before he was dropped from the test team the first time, he had a poorish run and that can happen. But I just feel he's got something in his game. And I also think that about Oli Pope as well, who certainly at county level has made big scores and shown adaptability. He does look a bit, you know, frenetic against spin at the moment, but I think he's got the makings of being a, a fine test player as well. So I would be sticking with those two and and finding some others to fit around. You know, people are saying, what what to do with Joss Butler? It's it's impossible to know. And, uh, you know, with Joss Butler, he's someone who I feel he bats best when he knows what's expected. And when I say what is he's ready, he knows what the target is. So his best innings for England in the last two, two years in test cricket was that run chase against Pakistan at Old Trafford when he and Chris Wokes were sort of the last pair of recognised batsmen chasing whatever score it was and they put on how many remind me 140 well, they, or something
1: they, they needed about 270 to win they came together at around about 100 for for five and they took england fairly
0: close to their their winning target yeah uh, and so he knew and he said you know i batted then as if it was a one-day game and i knew you know when to raise the tempo and i feel he bats best in england colors and I say that, you know, whether it's whites or coloured clothing, when he knows what the target is. So either opening the batting in white ball cricket, knowing you've got to get the team off to a fast start and, you know, taking risks and so on is part of his game, but he they're calculated risks. Or chasing runs in a white ball game, you know what the target is. Or chasing runs in a test match, and you know what the target is. When it's open-ended and he goes into bat in a test match at 140, Eighty for five, or 210 for, for four, or whatever. I just don't feel he's quite got the. He hasn't quite worked it out in his head how to play, and that's the the problem that England have with him at the moment. You know, I I hope he gets there, but but maybe the will isn't there. You know, maybe he just wants to to play the white ball game, and perhaps the Test match red ball game has become too hard for him. I mm. mean, um, it's not um,
1: impossible to, to see Josh Butler just focusing on white ball cricket in the future and say, well, you know, this tour and no further. It it, it could well happen. And, you know, as I said, there are a lot there's often a lot of fallout uh, from an Ashes series. We, we've talked over this, yours for, for half an hour or so. Lots of people out there will have their own ideas and uh, about what changes should happen. Uh, around the England team and in the game itself. You know, a lot of people saying, yeah, there needs to be a lot more focus on on red ball cricket as opposed to white ball cricket. Of course, there was after the 2015 World Cup when England had such a wretched time in Australia. Afterwards, you know, they said, thus far, no further. We need to change. And I wonder whether this tour will be a sort of watershed moment. But I think I think one of the things we've sort of concluded from from, from our conversations and thinking about it and talking about it, um, sort of off air, if you like, before this podcast, no easy answers. There England have lots of problems and they could well be in for a a thin time of it. They've had a very thin time of it in the last year. They could be they could be in for some more
0: uh, thin times in the future. Ooh. No no easy answers. No, I so, no yeah, yeah I I agree. But you know, the answers are necessary because although I said in you know a previous show it's not as important winning away as it is winning at home and you know, this is going on in the middle of the night. I mean, you know, this all unfolded last night before anyone had woken up again, unless they stayed up to watch it, obviously. Uh, So, there's a sort of element of invisibility about it, though obviously there'll be the headlines today which draws everyone attention to it. It's more important to win at home, but there is now the World Test Championship. So, every test match counts, whether it's at home or away. Uh, And England at the moment will be (laughs) sliding down that World Test Championship table, you know, an inexorable slide down it at the moment. Um, one little galling stat here that that someone's posted on Twitter, Australia retains the urn inside 12 days. England spent longer quarantining on the Gold Coast. Yeah, that just about sums it up, doesn't it? I mean, there, there,
1: are, there are so many stats, fact, whatever, knocking around today that are all fairly depressing for uh, England supporters. But yeah, what you hope is that there. this is a sort of... A moment where people do take stock and think, right, this is yeah, things have to change. It's not good enough to just keep coming to Australia, going to India, and losing. You have, and, and also the other point is, uh, I may make it again. It's England have started losing at home as well. So, you uh, know, it's all very well to say. Uh, it's invisible here and to some extent it is although i think people do actually invest quite a lot of stock in the ashes people want england to do well here and they do follow the series and there's a sense of uh, deflation when it when it goes wrong here but if you know, england start to lose at home it will have a knock-on effect people become uh, disgruntled and when that happened in the 90s there, there were efforts to change it and we had things like f- i mean four-day cricket started for example was embedded you know proper four-day cricket Central contracts, so in a, in a way, and and that helped. I think for central contracts did help. So there needs to be a sort of a, a deep think, and there needs to be a, a some sort some sort of reset, but not with you know people. I think were suggesting things then, but they're not so obvious now. So. Uh, you know, is that thing. There is. There needs to be a sort of trawl of ideas and a, and a synthesis actually, and to try to find the best ones and some you know,
0: best policies to try to improve England's red ball team. Yeah, I mean, if if you look at the what happened with the white ball game after the 2015 disastrous World Cup, the there were changes. Obviously, uh, Andrew Strauss was brought in as director of cricket. Paul Downton was was sacked as director of cricket, and Andrew Strauss was brought in. And the first two things he did was appoint Owen Morgan as captain and uh, p- totally placed his faith in Morgan and then appointed Trevor Bayliss uh, as coach. They identified someone who had a, a, a very good track record in white ball cricket and also someone who wanted to uh, put all the um, emphasis and uh, uh, responsibility and authority in the captain as well rather than a coach who was too uh, intrusive and that, that combination that 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 obviously worked beautifully. and they also identified a number of players they were going to stick with over that period that they saw as the solution to England's white ball cricket. and obviously that ended with the World Cup win.
1: Yeah, I mean that's true and I think that but there's one fundamental difference that I see is that England did have that white ball talent and they did they needed to harness it and they needed to release it. Whereas I don't, when I look around, I don't see as much red ball talent, and I think that is one of the fundamental problems. That somehow or other, in the next year or two or three or four, or whatever, England need to put an emphasis on nurturing red ball talent. How they do that is not as we, as we've suggested in this uh, podcast. It, they're they're
0: not easy answers. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sorry to, to that it's also gloomy. Cheer yourself up by looking at our Ashes heroes. NFT collection, um, NFT are those non-fungible tokens, which uh, I know is it's, it's the buzzword for next year, the NFT, and you can own an Ashes Heroes NFT and there are so many really interesting characters down the years that have played in Ashes Test from both teams you'll have forgotten many of them. Uh, you can rekindle your memory with some of them if you go to our ashesheroes.com website and have a look at those great heroes which we've ranked from 100 to 1. Uh, not many of this current England team are in that uh, rankings uh, but one or two are obviously Joe Root being one. Uh, so have a look at that actually because it might just uh, I don't know cheer you up or make you deflect your 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 mind from this calamity that's unfolded in Australia on to Sydney we go well fingers
1: crossed anyway depending on the COVID uh, situation still two more tests to go Sydney and Hobart and England's goal uh, Joe Root said it in his post-match interview, not not to lose uh, five nil uh, it's happened before um, England desperate to avoid it happening again but the incentive for Australia will test championship points they don't want to be uh, watching on watching New Zealand or India or whatever compete in the final uh, this time they want to be in that final so we'll be back. Uh, for the Sydney Test match. Is it going to get any better? Well, I can't promise you that. But uh, we'll be back uh, with a review of the first day of the Sydney Test match in the new year. So all that remains for me and you, Yoz, to um, before
0: then is to wish our listeners a very happy new year. Yes, happy new year to all of you. And thanks very much for listening. Let's look forward to 2022. <music>